speaking of uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, perfect segue, National Lampoon's Vacation. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so, okay, so I have a... There, there's, there's no real structure for this episode because it, yep. it, there's just so much. I, it, it's so easy to get overwhelmed. But one thing, I wanted to throw this off right at the beginning. I don't know what it is, but I, I, again, it's some of it's the 80s. It, it was a different time. But every one of these John Hughes movies, I haven't seen all of them, but there's always these weird, dark, cringy moments. There, Every movie seems to have one or two scenes that doesn't age well. His, st his sense of comedy at times is interesting and unique and weird sometimes. And... Mm. The, the big thing for me in rewatching Vacation, the scene that I don't believe ages very well, that, again, I can put myself in the time period and I can imagine people laughing, but I believe they're in St. Louis when they're driving and I believe they get their hubcap stolen. Yeah, yeah. That scene, I'm like, oh my God, this... Because I think us now in this climate that we're in... Everyone kind of watches movies with this lens where it's like, it's like the phrase, well, you can't do that anymore. You can't make this anymore. You can't say this anymore. Yeah. And it's so hard to avoid that. But I'm watching this scene. I'm like, yeah, this is just a, an interesting representation of this part of St. Louis, quote unquote. I don't even know if I could say it, but like the ghetto. Okay. So I'm like. Okay, but I, 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 it's a common thread through a lot of these movies, and I was just curious if you noticed it with all the stuff you watched outside of, like, Home Alone and shit. Oh, yeah, like, there's... I, I actually literally... I'm not... I just finished watching 16 Candles, like, half an hour ago, okay. and <laughs> there's the whole Asian thing, which people have talked about to death at this point, but also yeah. I've noticed across a lot of his films, they use the... Um, uh, they use the f word a lot. The like what yep. the what what the British would call a cigarette word a lot, and yep. um, and they say uh the r word like like the I'm not gonna say it here and get you canceled on your podcast, but they say yeah. a lot of things that you wouldn't be able to say. But that stuff doesn't necessarily bother me. I think upon rewatching a lot of these films, I find the pacing is all over the map, and like. You put on every movie. One of the points I wrote down was like, because I know me and you bitch about long movies all the time, including the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but every time you turn on these movies, they're like, oh, 90 minutes. Fuck yeah, let's go. This is going to be great. I felt a lot of them were a slog to get through, and they're only 90 minutes. Well, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll get into it here. Uh, so yeah, welcome back, Raised on Film. We're talking about the legendary filmmaker, John Hughes. <laughs> Uh, Chris, it's been a while. How have you been? Good, man. Good. Thanks for having me on again. Um, I was just curious as to, um, what made you pick me for this episode? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, nice. no. I, honestly, I remember I had a few ideas and, um, I, I, I had, I wanted to do another Christmas episode, which will be coming up next. And nice. I wanted to do, um, it, honestly, it stemmed from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It's one of my favorite movies, and I'm like, hmm, I, I, we could maybe do something for American Thanksgiving, and because uh, I know a lot of people listen to this from the states, and oh, nice. um, and I'm like, okay, well, I, I don't know if I mean I could talk about Planes, Trains, and Automobiles for a whole episode, but I don't know how like 
I don't know how interesting that would be. I mean, I know it's a it's a beloved movie, but I'm like, mm-hmm. let's expand it, and maybe there's something to talk about with John Hughes. And then from there, I don't really remember. I just remember messaging you, and I don't recall in all of our film experience ever really talking about John Hughes. Yeah. And I'm like, hmm, okay, well, maybe that's interesting. You're, you're a smart guy. You love film, and... Whether you love or don't like a majority of his movies, I mean, he obviously had a huge impact, specifically in the 80s. Like, this guy, like, I'm just going to go through years here. Now, again, he's got more scripts out there. He only directed eight movies, but he's got Mm -hmm. a shitload of scripts. He even had an alias, uh, Edmund Dantes, later in his career, so he was still pumping out scripts, but... 1982, 1983, 1984, 1985. Like, he had movies, like, classic movies coming out every year, sometimes twice. Like, yeah, he had like a movies. lot of them were filming at the same time. Like, we were yeah, watching like um, 80s, like, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles she's having a baby there's like cameos from all yeah. these people in his movies because they were all filming around the same time now uh, and yes and i was just getting through like 1983 and mr mom national lampoon's vacation uh national lampoon's european vacation 85 with the breakfast club and weird science now that to me again these aren't all directing but i guess i wanted to come at it from this angle where it's like you have so many different styles of filmmakers like quentin tarantino every couple years he pumps something out and then there's a gap And then you have, like, Spielberg that occasionally would do two movies in a year, like Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, uh, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can. Then you have this, where it's, like, it's even more so than that, because some years he's directing two movies, but he's got scripts going out the yin-yang all over the place. Yeah. And I don't know if he's on set. I don't know if he's producing. Like, I know he's got some producing credits as well. But what are your thoughts on a filmmaker that has so many things happening at once and not focusing on one thing at one given time? Like the the best example is Spielberg filming Schindler's List um, in Poland while doing post-production virtually over um, uh, for, for Jurassic Park. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Doing, he's essentially doing two very different movies at the same time, directing mm-hmm. one on location uh, production and then post production another one. What are your thoughts on filmmakers doing that, and where do you kind of stand with that? Uh, I think filmmakers like Spielberg are definitely far and few between because he can definitely pull it off. I don't. Yeah. I think John John Hughes is almost a different story because Schindler's List and Jurassic Park are just drastically different movies versus. When we start, we'll get more into the meat of it as we go here. But a lot of John Hughes movies are very similar. Same style, yeah. Yeah, like there's a lot of similar plot lines and things, or plot points and things like that that carry over from movie to movie, for example. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing as long as the filmmaker can pull it off. And I I think John Hughes, like, John Hughes to me, in retrospect, like watching uh, a bunch of his movies. Now I've watched 10 movies leading up to this podcast. Plus I've seen, I didn't watch any of the, I watched home alone three just cause I haven't seen that one in forever. Yeah. But I've seen home alone one and two a million times. I've seen Christmas vacation a million times. And then I watched, uh, breakfast club vacation, Ferris Bueller, Dennis, the menace was the first viewing for me. I saw that I watched oh, planes, trains again. Uh, I watched Weird Science, which was a first viewing for me. I watched She's Having a Baby, which was a first viewing for me. Uh, Pretty in Pink and 16 Candles as well, which were both first viewings for me. 
Um, I don't think, I think he obviously had like lightning in the bottle early on. And when you read about um, his films and his scripts and how basically he was like the first guy to write teenagers as people and not as like horny, like sex weirdos, basically like in movies like Porky's and stuff like that. So I try to look at it through that lens, but I found rewatching a lot of or watching or rewatching a lot of these movies that actually a lot of them to me do not hold up to today's standards. And I think he's I think he just had lightning in a bottle during the 80s, basically. And and I'm all for people making multiple movies at the same time. Like Spielberg is just your it's the reason why Spielberg is like one of the only people who can do that successfully. Yeah, it might obviously it might not have been like the best example, but like you have like uh, James Cameron that's that that's every couple years, sometimes longer. He's making Kubrick like five Avatar the movies way. at the same time. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll I'm not going to use that as I don't know what no, I'm doing I know. with that, but um, there's just so many different styles, right? There's people that are pumping out, and you're totally right. These they, these could all be filmed on the literally like some of them are on the same location. Like, you could literally yeah, yeah. just a sit lot there of them kind of cross over. A lot of the cast yeah. cross over. Now, in regards, to, like, I, I was trying to nail it down because I do agree with you. Like, for uh, just to go along with what you said, 16 Candles and Weird Science were first-time watches for me. Um, I wasn't a huge fan. Uh, again, I think with when you remove nostalgia from those types of movies, I, I think it's really hard to, to – I'm not to say you you wouldn't like them – but they're just they're, – they're so specific for their time period and their style and, and the dialogue yeah. – Whereas I do think he has a few movies that do kind of break through that. I do think breakfast club is a movie that can, and again, there are a couple scenes that don't age well, but it it does, it it can hit an audience today. I think because of the, like, like like you said, the portrayal of kids in that. And I I don't want to get into breakfast club yet because I I do have a lot of good things to say about it. But what I was going to say with like weird science, 16 candles, pretty in pink it's it's like there's there's stories of him writing these scripts in a couple days and it's like yeah it's interesting because i don't think they're bad i think he's a good writer but the i don't want to use the word easy and simple but a lot of these plots are very simple and i think the ones that 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 break through and the ones that are like timeless let's use home alone for example Home Alone's a pretty basic story. Mm-hmm. It's the performances that elevate it. Macaulay Culkin was a great child actor. You got Joe Pesci and him and him and Daniel Stern going back and forth with each other was was very they had very good chemistry. Catherine O'Hara is great in the movie. And then you look at Breakfast Club. It was casted very well. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. You have Steve Martin and John Candy, two legends of comedy. So that's where I kind of separate it, where I think if you don't have the powerhouse performances and the casting, they're just fine. I Again, I, I don't really think any are really bad, but there are some that I'm just like, yeah, I, this isn't for me. Are there any that stand out on either end of the spectrum that are that were really good or you just not a fan? Uh, Well, like I said, I wasn't huge on a lot of like Pretty in Pink and 16 Candles Weird Science. I And she's having a baby. It was not huge honestly i wasn't huge on a lot of these things like uh i i feel like every time i come on here i say like oh i can't wait to show my son noah these movies and i think upon rewatching a lot of these movies the only ones i would really show him at this point is ferris bueller and 
Breakfast Club. To me, those are t- his two strongest movies. And like, I, okay. I think um, his movies aren't very plot heavy, right? Like, and they don't need to be. But no. I think when they're sh- when they're put around a certain structure, they work better. Like Breakfast Club takes place over a day. Ferris Bueller's over a day. There is a couple other ones that are taking place over a day, but th- yeah. like. There's a natural Home Alone's a couple days. Planes, Home Alone's trains, and a couple days. Couple days. Exactly. Well, those are I would say some of his stronger works as well. But um, I think a good director, like movies that he didn't direct, that are his better movies, I think were directed by someone else. Uh, specifically, Vacation and Home yeah. Alone. Harold um, Ramis, Chris Columbus, like two good directors. Yeah, I agree. The good directors, because a lot of mediocre directors uh, directed his stuff, like. Not to necessarily like diminish their careers, but if you go look at their IMDb uh, for a lot of these directors, like the guy who directed, um, oh, what was the one I just watched? Not she's having a baby. Uh, I'm blanking on it. But like the guy who directed one of his later, I think, it was, sorry, it's Home Alone 3. That's what I'm thinking of. The guy who directed Home Alone 3 went on to make Scooby Doo, Scooby Doo 2, and like all these like kind of goofy kids movies, you know what I mean? And a lot of them are like that. Like the guy who directed. Pretty in Pink, like the highlight of his career, in my opinion, is like Pretty in Pink and the other couple John Hughes movies he did. And then he kind of just fell into TV and stuff. But then you have guys like Chris Columbus and Harold Ramis directing some of his scripts. And those are, in my opinion, the stronger movies that he wrote but didn't direct. Now, what are your thoughts of him? I don't know if you're familiar with the exact eight that he directed, but what are your thoughts on him as a director? Like when he directed his own script? I think, well, I think it, uh, like I said, Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club are my two favorites. So I think when he has a good script, his directing's great. Like, he doesn't need to do anything flashy. Uh, he, I think just, he's really got the, I, I think to your point too, the cast obviously has it really dialed in as well. But I yeah. think those are just his stronger scripts. And he's just like, he's making more movies. He was getting more deals and making more movies. Like uh, who, what, like you're a guy in the eighties, you're trying to make money. Like, I don't, did you watch she's having a baby or have you ever watched that? I movie? did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So it that's basically like, that was, ba- that's basically like his life, right? Like that's based basically yeah. on his real life. And like, so you're a guy just trying to make it and you're like stuck in this dead end job and someone offers you a bunch of money to make movies. You're going to start pump. Like, like you said, like a lot of these scripts he wrote in a couple days, yeah. And upon watching these films, you're like, you can kind of tell that because mm-hmm. not a lot of them have good, like with 16 candles, uh, just to bring that up. Cause that was my freshest watch. There's no character. Like in my opinion, there's no character arc there. Like she has a crush on this boy. Then the whole movie, this boy doesn't really notice her up until randomly, like kind of midway through the movie and then just likes her. There's nothing, there's no inciting incident that, uh, makes them come together. He just pulls up in his Porsche at the end of the movie and he's like, Hey, I like you. And I know you like me. Like, let's get together. And then they get together. There's no lessons learned or anything. So I find, I find a lot of his scripts suffer that same with she's having a baby. Like I find Kevin Bacon's character, who's essentially a stand in for John Hughes kind of just bitches about his life, the entire movie. And then right before his wife's about to have a baby, he like falls in love with her again. Meanwhile, almost the entire movie, he was fantasizing, like cheating on her. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I just find that his, I think him writing these scripts in a couple days shows, uh, in terms of his directing, I think when he has really good cast and really good material, his directing is great because it kind of directs itself. Um, but yeah, I found, like I said, 
before i found a lot of his uh i'm trying not to be too negative because i think also um no it's fine (laughs) i didn't really know much about john hughes as a person until this this podcast like getting ready for this podcast and i actually respect him quite a bit as a as a filmmaker and i think he's one of those filmmakers who's gone on to inspire better works uh that clearly like like kevin smith is a huge fan of john hughes yeah. And now watching a bunch of John Hughes movies, you can see that. Uh, Judd Apatow said he's been a fan of uh, John Hughes. There's countless other ones as well. I thought Weird Science uh, had a lot of homages that I've seen. in um, str- like Clearly, the guys who made Stranger Things loved Weird Science because I thought the mall looked the exact same. There's even a oh, line in the movie. There's even yeah. a line in the movie where they go, this is Max, but we call him Mad Max. And like I'm rewatching Stranger Things right now with my son because he's finally gotten into it. Yes, nice. And um, so I'm seeing like these influences, and I think personally, Stranger Things is is a stronger piece of material than a lot of these films. And but without having these films from 40 plus years ago, you wouldn't have things like Stranger mm. Things. So I respect him in that sense. But in terms, of, I just think I was saying to Jenna right before this that I think his filmography is similar to like those 1950s like westerns for example where like at the time those were like the bee's knees those were the best thing you could see in a cinema and i still respect them uh but you have to like watch them in context of the time they were made and like produced and things like that but i don't think a lot of those films hold up to today because we've seen so many amazing westerns since the john um uh john ford days that it's hard to if if we're not comparing them based on the context of the time they were released and we're just comparing them as pieces of art more recent westerns are a lot stronger than the stuff back then and i feel the same way with john hughes like clearly super bad for example is like one of my teen movies that i go to i think that's yep. an amazing teen movie i can still watch it to this day we watched it somewhat recently i love it i think it's hilarious now that's probably me being nostalgic because I was in peak high school years in 2007 yeah. when that movie came out. But I think that's a stronger movie that also something that weird science does. And also 16 candles did. Uh, I can't remember um, if pretty and pink did it, but they have this like party that kind of comes up out of nowhere in the middle of the movie and all the characters end up there and things happen there. But I like that modern films like super bad have worked their way up that, like the the climax of the film is the party like mm-hmm. it does it like like the characters have a goal in that like they can meander they can go from the store and mclovin's gonna get punched in the face and they gotta go find this they gotta go find that but the ultimate goal is to get to the party and that's kind of the yeah. the idea i'm saying with breakfast club and ferris bueller like at the end of the day the movie is the ferris bueller's day is gonna end and so he's gonna have to leave downtown chicago eventually breakfast club is going to come to an end and they're all going to go home eventually. You know what I mean? So there's, there's kind of that goal in the distance they're working towards kind of thing. And that's where I think his movies are stronger. I feel like I rambled a little bit there, but take that. Yeah. I, I have two points, but I'm, I'm trying to remember what the second one, <laughs> the second one was. <laughs> no, 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 no. All excellent points. I totally agree with you. The first thing I was going to say is in regards to his scripts, um, obviously his history or his, the beginning of his career at the national lampoon magazine, uh, writing yeah. for them the short stories or whatever they were obviously that t- 
totally translates to a lot of his material because a lot of it is simple. Like I said, not a lot's going on. It's almost like it is coming from a short story. Like the original vacation movie, I believe was a short story about a family taking a trip. Uh, My second point, and it goes along with the characters is, and again, I haven't seen everything he's written, but for the most part, John Hughes doesn't write lovable, likable characters a lot. Even the ones we love, they all have flaws. They all have annoying tendencies or character traits. And not a lot of them have arcs like you, uh, you said it a little bit ago. Now a couple of them do. That's what I like. Those are my favorite um, John Hughes movies. Like breakfast club has it in spades, planes, trains, and automobiles for sure. Steve Martin, obviously playing kind of like a, um, what's uh, Scrooge from A Christmas Carol. He's yeah. kind of playing that kind of character throughout, so he obviously has an arc, but he's not a likable character at the beginning. John Candy, uh, Del Griffith, is a little annoying and says a lot of inappropriate things and is it drives you crazy for most of that movie. All the characters in The Breakfast Club, they're, 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 they're well-portrayed teens in high school, but all of them have rough edges, and they kind of they don't nest like would you say they change at the end of breakfast club or would you say that they just hear each other uh that's a good i don't point. see i don't think they necessarily opinion. change because they talk i don't about think how they really do hang out yeah they, they talk about how they're not going to hang out yeah after detention right but they all do kind of hear each other as well that's that's what when i watch it this time i really wanted to watch it for that because you have nice moments at the end but it seems like the five of them come together. They have an understand, like a mutual understanding. They all have similar. They're all more similar than what they thought going into the day. Obviously, so there is some change, but they're not changing. Their perspective changes. Maybe that's probably the best way to. But they're still the same people. They're gonna go back to their same cliques, and then it's obviously left ambiguous if any of them are gonna be friends after. We don't know. You can fill in the dots if you want. Um, but it's just interesting that John Hughes does like even Ferris Bueller is a, a pretty bad kid. Like, but he's also likable and like, he's singing the Beatles and like, I, li- I think Ferris Bueller is probably his most likable character, even though he's a shithead. I think he, I think he's the most likable character. And just looking at my list of notes and stuff, like, uh, just thinking of like characters that go through an arc. The only character off the top of my head that goes through an arc is Cameron and Ferris Bueller. Because right. yes. the end of the, the movie ends with him being like, I am going to stand up to my shitty dad, blah, blah, blah. Great but moment. That's, that's the only character I can like think of that like has a moment like that. Kevin McAllister, I guess. I, I mean, a little bit he learns to... I mean, him and his mom obviously have a big arc and that the mom's going through a lot throughout that mm-hmm. movie. And like the stuff with the old man. Like it's all there. It's just not a... It's a they're not obvious arcs. They're not like... This guy is a piece of shit, and at the end of the movie, he's a lovable. He's changed his ways, like like a Christmas Carol, like that I just referenced. They're yeah. not that obvious, and like even like I said, like some of his better movies, like Ferris Bueller, doesn't change at all. I have, I truly believe he's gonna pull this stunt again. Oh, another because well, they already say at the beginning of the movie that he's done it like nine times, or yeah, fourteen times, or something like that. Yeah, he's and and that's what's so interesting about it because now okay, so the, the, to go back, Ferris Bueller is a good example. So you watch the movie as a like with these movies, you can watch the same movie through many different lenses. 
Mm-hmm. You can watch it as a kid. Watching Home Alone is a very different experience than when you watch it as an adult. Once you become a parent, because you're going to be watching it through like um, the mom, Captain O'Hara. And you can grow with these movies. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I bet you, is the same, or sorry, a different viewing experience as a 40-year-old versus an 18-year-old. And I find that fascinating because I do think a lot of these movies, whether they don't age well or not, are timeless. I think he did tap into something for sure. Breakfast Club is the easiest example because you said it at the beginning. His portrayal of kids in high school is, is really good. And no matter what decade you are in, like I watch Breakfast Club and again, not even though I didn't go through these specific things, everything they're saying, I know someone that was like that or I understand what they're saying. And that was made in 1985 and it's 2023. So I just think he's got so many scripts and so many movies out there that I think the really, truly special great ones are the minority for sure. Yeah, I wrote that down somewhere. I'm trying to find my note, but like it when it hits, it hits really well. It's like Seinfeld where you can still watch Seinfeld and like yeah. a lot of those ideas still carry over to today because they're very like they're they're social based. Relatable. Necess- yeah, they're yeah. very relatable. They're not necessarily they some of them are of the times, but they're not to a degree. So uh yeah, when they hit, they hit like Breakfast Club's a perfect example cuz even though I feel like there's probably less clicks today than there were back then but when we went to high school there was definitely clicks and like factoring in early days of cell phones and computers and msn messenger and all that old crap like a lot of the archetypes are still there and like you said we went to school with a lot of guys that you could be like oh this guy reminds me of so-and-so and and that guy reminds me of so-and-so kind of thing well it's you brought up super bad which is a great example because you and i are basically the same age and super bad for sure hit me the same way it hit you that's our nostalgic like again my opinion on superbad has always been like again there's inappropriate parts in it for sure but they they nail the again as a as a as a young guy for the most part they nailed the mindset of a boy in high school again you are wanting to go to parties you're wanting to talk to girls and hey it it, it you, you want to have sex like that's what people are doing in high school. Again, it's a movie. They're having fun with it for sure. But there's no one that can deny that and say that, no, Superbad didn't get high school kids at all. It's like, no, I would disagree with you. I think it nailed it in many regards. And I watch mm-hmm. it and I put myself vicariously back into high school. And like, you know what? Yeah. You know, are there inappropriate things in the movie? For sure. But they're young, dumb boys that are making mistakes and learning. And like, when you get to the end of that movie, they, they, got, they have arcs in that. So I'm, I'm wondering because we don't have, we, I talked about this with Jake where, can you have nostalgia for something if you weren't there when it was released? And is it just based off when you saw it? And like, I saw, and that, and that's what we, that was our, our, um, that was our conclusion saying that like, I have nostalgia for Jaws. I have nostalgia for ET Rocky. And even though I wasn't there when they came out and I don't have true nostalgia, like I wasn't alive you can still have that and i have that for some of these movies but i can only imagine being in high school in 1985 and going to watch breakfast club how that movie would hit you even now as a 40 50 60 year old person like that's their super bad and i mean i just i love that about it because i think it nailed it in so many ways but i did have to ask because i'm not a big pot smoker how bad is the sequence when they get high? 
Oh, the the <laughs> sequence when they get high. Well, first of all, it doesn't last a long time. Versus, I guess it depends on how much you smoked, but it would last yeah. longer. Also, that my my um reaction when they started smoking the library was like that thing's gonna fucking reek up the whole library like like when you smoke a joint especially indoors like that thing is gonna reek there's no way that principal didn't smell that fucking residue being like someone definitely smoked weed in here i'm pretty sure john hughes's only regret for the breakfast club is the glass breaking with emilio estevez in the room yeah, that well, that's just like a random kind of like surreal moment in that movie <laughs> that otherwise doesn't really have surreal moments. I hate when he's going around flipping and jumping, and I, that's just me. Where I'm like, I love this movie, but I'm like, I hate that's like when they're woo woo, and he's just running, and he's like, ah, ah. <laughs> I think yeah, I think when you're smoking weed, you're definitely not going that crazy. I th- I've been we've been to parties. <laughs> Like in our college days and then some where like, you know, where you're drinking and smoking weed where it can get a little rowdy. But if you're just straight smoking weed, you're not going to go flip tables or any of that shit. And and, and that's on the contrary. Again, not that I have a lot of experience. All my experience basically is with you, Chris. Um, I love that. I love the three of them. I think it's um, it's Molly Ringwald, Judd Nelson and Anthony Michael Hall. When they're just sitting and he's doing voices and and Judd Nelson's just sitting there and he has a little smile on his face, I love that portrayal. I think that's great. That's just definitely more loose. realistic for and sure. And she's just like, I'm so popular, or whatever she's saying. And then he, and it's kind of like their their inner child, their inner, the, the, who they are, like the, their guards being let down. And I think I love like Judd Nelson's the standout in that movie. Like I love oh, him. I I wrote that I wrote that down somewhere. Like it's like it's basically his movie, and everyone else is like just. And I wanted to bring him. it up to you. I I never thought about it before, uh, and I really watched it this time, and it's actually really sad. But um, there's a sequence obviously when he gets a bunch uh, a. Uh, more detentions added on. I think it's like eight weeks or 10 weeks oh, or something. I love that. That's that so seems, painful to watch. Scene's amazing. But then I'm thinking on it on like a whole other level. I'm like, this guy doesn't want to go home because yeah. that's how bad his house is. And again, they obviously show the cigarette burn and he, he gives um, examples of them at Christmas, like smoke up Johnny and all this stuff. And then he gets punched and all that. But I, I never really watched it through that lens. I'm sitting there. I'm like, I feel so bad for this guy that he's like just acting out and being a complete idiot and buffoon and um, a criminal, I guess is his nickname in the movie. And um, just because he doesn't want to go home, it is better in detention at school than it is in his home atmosphere with his abusive father. And I'm like, God, this, and again, that's, that's where it's like with all these scripts, John Hughes has written and then there's this, like, I think, I think script wise for sure. And you can make the argument movie breakfast club, I think is just the gold, you know, is his opus or whatever it's called. Like it's just on so many levels. When you get to the moment when they're all sitting down on the ground and it's like a 20 minute scene. And I lo- I, I think most of it was improvised and they're just opening up to each other and yelling and laughing. And then this whole, like, it's just, it's a beautiful movie with, a few cringy scenes for sure that don't age well, but the message and the meaning is timeless. And I think they just nailed it. And a lot of it is because of Judd Nelson. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, no, I ditto literally everything you said. I love the breakfast club as well. And it is one of the few, like perfect, one of the few perfect movies, especially from that time period. And, uh, no, I love Judd Nelson, that movie. I love, 
everything. I, as I get older, I just feel more, like you said, I feel more bad for Judd Nelson's character. Like, I think when I watched this as a teenager, I think when I watched it as a teenager, I related to it more. Yeah. And, but watching it as an adult, I feel bad, particularly for Judd Nelson. And I also feel bad a little bit for Emilio Estevez because I've met people like that as well. Yeah. And, well, I mean, I played hockey. Kid, you're like, yeah. when you're a kid, you're like, Judd Nelson's the fucking coolest guy. And you kind of like, to me anyway, I didn't really compute the scenes where he's getting abused because I didn't live in a household where I was abused like that. Yeah. So like, uh, you don't compute it. But again, as an adult, you're like, oh man, I feel just, someone give these guys a goddamn hug for fuck's sake. Yeah, they're all they're all reaching out. I mean, the only really reserved one until later in the movie is Ali Sheedy's character, which I, she's fantastic in it. They're mm-hmm. all <clears throat> like great actors. Obviously, Molly Ringwald is an interesting character. She's annoying. Well, even when uh, when Anthony Michael Hall's character talks about bringing the gun, like how that yeah. hits even more crazy these days than it would have back then. Like yeah. back then, that was almost like a fantasy. But these days, with how it, uh, frequently it happens, it's like oh my god, like. That's yeah. terrifying. And a good thing, well, not a good thing, but one thing I really liked watching this time is a scene that I never used to care about is the scene with the principal in the, in the, the room hanging out with the janitor. And he, he oh, opens, yeah. like you get a little bit from the principal just saying, Hey man, like I'm getting older. These guys are the future. And yeah. as you get older, you look at it and say, yeah, like you can laugh and, and get angry at kids as much as you want and be annoyed and like get off my lawn type thing. But at the end of the day, like, this is the future, and he's and he's terrified. And, like, again, we don't dive too much into his character for good reason. But no. that moment, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then the janitor kind of opens it, opens up his eyes. And then um, and then you have the janitor's little payoff moment at the end when they all walk out, and he says, see you next Saturday, and laughs. The, John Hughes decides to just sit on the janitor just for a couple extra seconds looking and smiling at them, kind of like the optimist side coming out and like the principal's obviously a little more cynical but i'm like oh that's a nice little touch again not anything too crazy just a little nuance where i'm like yeah he's kind of looking off and he's a little hopeful a little more hopeful for the future saying that these kids might be able to get through this and then they're all just going back to their lives and i love that we don't go to school the next day it's just this one day this one moment in time where all these characters come together and then they they spread off and go together or go separately and we have no idea what happens yeah no it's great, it's great. It, it reminds me a little bit of the uh the before sunset movies like have you Ooh, ever seen i those? was gonna say 12 angry men but yeah totally yeah and uh it is it's perfect as breakfast club is it would have been cool to see like similar sequels to like the before sunset movies where it all just takes place in one day like 20 years later yeah. like this is what these guys are up to but uh yeah no love i think breakfast club is like like I said, it's it's up there with Ferris Bueller, and those are the two movies that, watching a good chunk of this filmography, those will be the movies I revisit when everything else will just kind of fall by the wayside going forward. Just because they're so strong, they're lightning in a bottle. You can't. You, it's hard to perfect those movies because mm-hmm. they're so perfect. So I'm I'm getting the sense. I think you're probably a little bit more high on um, Ferris Bueller's than me. I do like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, my personal favorite is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So I just want to spend a little bit of time on both of them. Yeah. What's kind of your what's your, what's your history with Ferris Bueller's Day Off? When did you first watch it? Uh, I don't. I couldn't tell you the exact day. I, watched I need the it, day. Like, the I date. need the exact date and time you watched it. <laughs> These movies were on TV all the time, and that's oh what my god, you, uh, Ferris Bueller's was on all the time. Yeah, Ferris Bueller was on all the time. Breakfast Club was on all the time. I had um. 
like I don't know what they call them now, but like 10, 15, 20 years ago, I had like um, those Rogers digital boxes. So we had like the movie network. And so yeah. they had they had the two channels that would replay old movies all the time. So that's how I saw Breakfast Club because they were constantly replaying Breakfast Club on those channels. So I would constantly tune into that. And then Ferris Bueller was always on like TBS or something like that. So I constantly was watching that one. Um, uh, but yeah, I love Ferris Bueller. I think he's just like such a great character. I love him um, talking to the screen. I think he's such a shithead, but in like a charming, lovable way. And um, it's just see, it's like an it's like an awesome fantasy day. Like that's roughly what you would want to do if you took the day off of high school. Yeah. Like go fuck around in the big city and like take dad's sick Ferrari and like go watch a baseball game and like just do all these things. It's like fantasy, like wish fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And again, as a kid, it's it's the perfect movie to watch. And again, I haven't watched it as like a as a father or in my forties or fifties. I'm sure I'll still enjoy it, but as a kid. Like, like you said, it's just, it's a total fantasy where it's like, oh, it's to it, it, it makes it seem like you could do it. I never did it. Um, like obviously I cut class now and again and all this stuff, but like this like planned day off where you have all these schemes and you call the school and you go pick up your girlfriend. Yeah, I love like, all that. It's just so much fun. My, I love when he, when they go to the restaurant and, uh, they want to take the table for, uh, what is it that I'm going to, it's going to. Abe Froman, right? Is that the name? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then Ferris gets pissed off. His ego goes against the, the other guy's ego. And they're like, Ferris, stop. And he's like, no, no, you can never go too far. I'm going to win this. And I just love it because it, it's totally his character where he's not going to let the anyone. Sausage King of Chicago. Yeah. He's never going to let anyone, specifically an adult, tell him what to do. He's got no authority figure. He's in control. And then they, of course, get they make it through and they go and have um, dinner the, the or lunch, the three of them. But I'm just, I, I love, I love that aspect to his character where he's like, and that's why I think it translates so well to kids where it's like, especially if you're a kid that is a yes, yes, man, yes, woman, yes uh, to authority. It's just kind of that fun ride where it's like, you know what? No, go do what you want. You can, there's a lot you can do in this world and just go have some fun and some confidence. And that's what, he he is he is pushing Cameron and he says it to the camera a lot throughout the movie because you're the one who brought it up about his arc and he's a good friend to Cameron he pushes him too mm-hmm. far sometimes but that's what a good friend is there for and you get that nice moment at the end of the movie where Cameron stands up to him and Ferris has been pushing him the whole movie do this do this do this he's like no no okay fine and that and the, and that's where it kind of works. And he even says it in the movie. Where he's like, um, I, I forget what it is. It's when the music's playing. It's right when he's his arc is complete. But he said, uh, I wanted to come today. Basically, he's like, um, I think Ferris says to him, he's like, I made you come out today. I made you take the car. He's like, you didn't make me take the car. I could have stopped you, Ferris. Something like that. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, that it's like his big monologue. Like, yeah, it's a beautiful like, stand up to his dad. Yeah, yeah, and but but that's what I like about it. He's about to stand up to his dad, but in that moment, he's standing up to Ferris and he's saying, "No, I'm gonna do this. I'm taking the fall." Because Ferris offers to, to yeah, do he, it. Ferris he, says he's gonna take the heat for the breaking yeah, the car. Yeah, I like it, and, and you can kind of see it in Matthew Broderick's performance, who, by the way, was completely typecast from this from this role, but um, uh. He, you can see in his face where he's proud of his friend, saying, "Great, awesome, good for you, man." 
Yeah, hundred percent. No, I I think a lot of us could probably relate more to Cameron than to Ferris. So it's great to like have that fantasy wish fulfillment of of having a buddy who's like, no, nah, fuck it, let's blow let's blow the day off, let's go do whatever we want. That's today. you for me. I'm Cameron and you're Ferris. Oh, that's so funny because I feel like I've definitely had moments in my actual high, maybe in college, but in my high school career, I definitely related more to Cameron than. Oh, I was consistently Cameron. You've known me very long, like. That's uh, true. I can see. I've that. had very little Ferris moments in my life. I'm very much a Cameron. Yeah, I think I claim came out of my shell a little bit in college yeah. and and whatnot, but yeah, no. Um, and so you what, so it sounds like so it sounds like what uh like do you have. Like, what don't you like about Ferris? It sounds like it just maybe it sounds like Breakfast Club just hits you better than. Emotionally yeah, there, than there's Ferris actually. Does. Yeah, there's nothing I don't like about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's just I don't love it as much as a couple others. Like if I were to do a top no, five, fair. it would be in it. Like, honestly, right off the top of my head, it would basically probably go uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles is number one. Breakfast Club two, Uncle Buck three. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is definitely fourth. Because I don't, and that's just obviously directing. Scripts would be different. Like, obviously, I love Christmas Vacation, Home Alone, and all that. But just in regards to directing, I think those are the four. Because I didn't, I've never seen Curly Sue. I've heard, no, it's his, I've heard it's his worst movie that he directed. She's Having a Baby would probably be my fifth. I didn't mind it. I liked elements to it. I was really into that movie for the first half an hour. And then the scene where they go to the club uh, after Alec Baldwin... Oh yeah, uh, stays the night at uh, <laughs> yeah. his house with that with the blonde haired chick, and then they go to the club after because he wants to feel younger. Like everything up until that point, I was super into, and then once they do the club thing, I kind of fell off the movie. I'm a big fan of the the lawn mowing number that they do. <laughs> I did okay, so that was actually one of my things that I wrote down for that movie is that that movie more than any of his other movies. So first of all, that's Kevin Smith's favorite John Hughes movie, apparently. Yeah, um, of course it is. Just a little random factoid there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the lawnmower dance and like the moments of surrealism in that movie, I thought were great. And yeah. I wish they had more of that where like, um, like there's a scene where he's in the office and the office walls are closing in on him kind of yeah. thing. Like I loved all that stuff and I wish he did more of that stuff. And you get those moments, like you said, in Breakfast Club when he breaks the window and there's other <laughs> like weird science obviously has a bunch of random moments like yeah. that. But in that particular movie, I thought it was really well done. I wish he did uh, more of that kind of stuff because it's really – visually, it's interesting, but also thematically, it, it relates to the subject matter kind of thing. Yeah, and that's what I mean. So I, I put it as fifth. I didn't. I liked most of it. And then, yeah, Weird Science and 16 Candles, I just wasn't a fan. Again, I, I watched them no. too late. Weird Science, I'm like – it was nice to see Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> but um, – Weird Science has a bit of a weird – legacy because i've always understood like <laughs> we're science as uh like this movie where guys create a girl to have sex with her and i think that's the original intention but then yeah. they never have sex with her and they kind of use her to get other girls i don't know i thought the messaging behind the movie was really it was random. it was again no pun intended it was very weird and um yeah i just Again, I didn't take anything away from it. Sixteen and, candles, and that was another movie where they didn't really have arcs. Like they're they're swooning after Bill these, Bill Paxton was the best part of Weird Science. Yeah, Bill Paxton <laughs> did have some great stuff in that. Uh, it was cool to see Robert Downey, and then like I said, having yeah. those references that that the Stranger Things guys clearly took for their um, for their show, like was cool to see, kind of thing. But yeah, weird that that movie hit so 
so much in the popular zeitgeist. Well, and 16 Candles was was the bigger letdown for me where I'm like, a lot of people love 16 Candles. I know yeah. it has like it has iconic moments and and all that for sure, but yeah, those would be at the bottom just in regards to directing. But yeah, back to your original question. There's nothing I don't like about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I just I like I happen to like a couple others a little bit more. No, that's fair. Just because I probably watch the other ones more and um, yeah, I, I do believe too. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is my uncle's favorite movie. Uh, don't quote me on that, but oh, nice. Um, I remember him talking about it a lot when I was younger. So, yeah, it's it, it's a, it's a great movie. Like I, I honestly believe, I I think Breakfast Club objectively stands a, a, above the rest, and then I think Planes, Trains, and Auto- Automobiles because of the performances is right right below it, right beside it, wherever you want to put it. I love Uncle Buck. A lot of people do, and Ferris Bueller. Those four, those are I think I, I personally directing wise, I think are his babies. And then when you want to add in some scripts, obviously Home Alone was a huge movie, very good, and yeah. Vacation and Christmas Vacation obviously are great. <clears throat> but um, no, I, I I'm curious. I just want to know how Planes, Trains, and Automobiles hit you this most recent re- this most recent time rewatching it. Well, uh, what what do you love about? planes trains and automobiles what do i love about it like why is it such a um uh, staple movie for you a couple reasons number one right off the hop i love john candy and steve martin (laughs) so i I love i love both those guys yes and i think they're again most of the praise for the i i don't think it's an amazing script i don't think he did anything fantastical directing it even though there are some decisions he made that were really good um but it's the performances, it's the chemistry, it's iconic scenes. And like I told Jake in uh, when we were talking about our, our 10 favorite movies of all time, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one of mine oh, because wow. okay. of the heartbeat throughout the movie and where the movie leaves off. And I just think that, I, I, I mean, it is a twist. I don't think of it as like a Sixth Sense twist, but it's no. just one that just, it hits as many times as I watch it because the movie's so goofy. Like Del Griffith is the most ridiculous character. He's a shower curtain ring salesman. Yeah. I love that. Or in the shower curtain division. Like it's the most ridiculous job. He says the most ridiculous things, but it makes for a really fun movie. It's a tight 90 minutes. The movie was trimmed down completely. I don't know if you know the history of this movie, but there was like a three-hour cut. There was a four-hour cut. There yeah, was well, a whole... apparently, um, apparently John Hughes in general would do this, where he would make yeah super long like script slash movies, and then everything would get whittled down to. 90 I think minutes. the like, original length like that. I think the original length of the script for Planes, Trains was in the ballpark of 140 pages, and yeah. um, it's a testament to John Hughes for sure because I've seen some deleted scenes, and he cut a lot of great acting performances specifically john candy there's a lot of stuff that's trimmed and he did it for the sake of the movie because it wouldn't be good over two hours i do believe a few extra scenes should have been thrown in there is a scene that has never seen the light of day it's after dell tells him that he's homeless um they go to a restaurant there's a few photos on online that you can see but basically dell griffith opens up about his wife and how he's he's gets sad at the holidays and it, he tends to latch on to people and he couldn't let neil go 
And again, I, I would like to see that oh, scene. I, I feel like they should have added that. Scene. I, yeah, I, I think planes, trains, and automobiles. It's I think it's ninety two minutes. Don't quote me on that, but it's a very quick runtime. I yeah. think it would have been fine around hour forty, hour forty five. Um, but yeah, two and a half, three hours, four hours. God no. But that's my biggest question for that movie is like, like I like the reveal. It's very heartbreaking. The reveal. Yeah. But my question, like, did he say he was homeless? Is that a line in the, he says, I don't have a home. Which I oh, think is... E- I took which, it as more metaphorically. Like, I don't have a home because my wife died. No, well, again, for sure. But he... Again, I, I like it because of the exact reasons I was just saying. A lot of it is left open-ended. We don't know what happens after the, the, the close-up of John Candy when it ends. Mm-hmm. I, we don't know the specifics of what happened to his wife. Does he have an apartment? Does he have something? Maybe... Well, but that's I my like question the, is like, why were you, why was he traveling? And I know that sounds nitpicky, but I was just like, why was he traveling? Like why well, did so he the, so, decide to travel back to Chicago or whatever? So this is where it works knowing the scene. Cause again, there's people that have the script and he talks about latching on to people. I think that's the big thing um, that you can fill in the dots yourself, which is what I like. Um, like I always believe that, um, Neil lets him stay there for a month or two. He helps him get a job. He helps him get mm-hmm. a place. Like he doesn't live there forever, obviously. But that's what I like about it, where you can connect the dots yourself. Not everything's spoon fed to you. But yeah, he does say, "I don't have a home." Uh, Marie died eight years ago, and yeah. I my guess is he just travels around during the holidays because he is a traveling salesman. So he does have a yeah. job. He does make money. Obviously, he wouldn't be able to travel. So, yes, you could say he has an apartment somewhere. But I also believe, and this is my opinion, that he doesn't have a home because he doesn't want to go back to an empty house. He probably stays in hotels. He, he, he does all this stuff. He just wants to keep moving because he doesn't want to think about his wife that's gone. And, again, the script is crazy. Like He talks about them wanting to have kids and all this stuff. And, again, I think it's unfortunate that they couldn't work it into the movie because i think it would have helped but that's the way i take it and it's just the performances man you have john candy being silly this whole movie except for a couple scenes obviously and then that moment when he looks up to neil and you have these two comedians just they there's there's just something about it man i don't know i know anyone that tells me breakfast club is is the best um john hughes movie or ferris bueller's or uncle buck I have no argument to dispute that. This just hit me the way it did. I just, I love it. There's just so many random scenes throughout the movie that are hilarious. I love the scene in the car. I love the scene in both hotel rooms. I love um, uh, the the scene at the airport. I want a fucking car with fucking wheels. With fucking, yeah. Like, again, it's just Steve. I love Steve Martin. I think he's such a good actor. And it's just, again, it's just, uh, you said it earlier, lightning in a bottle. Unfortunately, John Candy passed away a few years later. You're never going to get this again. You're never going to have two legends on screen together with a good filmmaker, with a good script. So that's kind of where I stand on it. And I kind of like that. It, I kind of feel like it's my little baby type thing. Cause I know a lot of people that don't love it. Most people I talk to just like it. They think it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of like that. It's kind of a special thing for me. It just, for whatever reason hits. And I love when Steve Martin finally breaks and gets out of the bed and just goes off on John Candy and everything. Yeah. He, he really fucking lays it in. Everything. He keeps going. 
everything he's saying is right. He's not wrong. And then John Candy, in a in a smaller little monologue, just comes back and says, you know what, you're right. You know, like, I'm an easy target. And then just goes to the bed. And I, I'm like, it's just, it's such a good scene. And yeah, so I don't know if I answered your question fully, but... No, you did. Well, like, literally listening you talk about it. Actually, like, and this is what, like, to refer back to the point where he wrote these scripts in a couple days. I don't know if he wrote this particular script in a couple days, but it it feels like it to a degree because I feel like adding all that context at the end with the wife and stuff, I think would have made the movie more... I feel like the movie kind of just ends. Yeah. And it doesn't have a defined ending. And I think if you would have put that stuff at the end just to emphasize the point and just give a little bit more character, I guess, to John Candy's oh, yeah. character. I I think that would have made it a much stronger movie for me. I don't hate it. I don't love it. Uh, like if it's on TV, I'll check it out or whatever kind of thing. But, um, but, and I also feel like I've been kind of negative this podcast. So I wanted you to go first and be positive, <laughs> but, uh, but, you uh, haven't been like, negative on everything you're saying. You got excellent points. Like it's not, we're not like, we cannot take away the impact that John Hughes has had on pop culture and movies. You've mentioned it even in critiquing other things. He's made an impact. Like you brought up Kevin Smith, for example. A lot of people love Kevin Smith. I don't love Kevin Smith. I like early Kevin Smith. There's some good movies for sure, but Kevin Smith has made an impact. Richard Linklater, Quentin Tarantino, uh, Kubrick. He seems, I've never really uh, listened to Tarantino talk about John Hughes, but Tarantino seems like a really similar guy to John Hughes where like John Hughes famously didn't like rewriting. Yeah. Like, like you had to stick to his script. I don't know necessarily if Tarantino has that similar rule, but Tarantino is like, you have to stick to the script kind of vibe. Yeah. And they talked about how he would write to music. Like he would play music and that's how he would write the script kind of thing. And the music would dictate the tone and the movie and things like that. So I've never heard Tarantino talk about Hughes directly that I can recall, but it seems like he had an impact on him as well. So that's why I'm saying like, I feel like, John Hughes definitely I respect him because he's had a influence on so many projects that I think are superior works overall to him, but you wouldn't have those works without him. Like we we've just been like talking for an hour. We've barely talked about Home Alone. I mean, everyone's talked about that movie to death, but like he wrote Dennis the Menace, he wrote Beethoven, he wrote Baby's Day Out, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, Hundred and One Dalmatians, The Great Outdoors, another John Candy movie. The vacation That's one that I've seen uh, on TV a bunch. The Great Outdoors. It's been forever since I've seen it. And then I also what was the other one you just mentioned? Oh, Baby's Day Out. I have a soft spot for because that was another one that I grew up on as well. And like it's, my cousin love that one. And it's interesting to me because all the ones I just listed, all the ones we talked about, for the most part, even weird, maybe a couple, but for the most part, even though I don't love most of them, I don't think any of them are bad. Like, and the fact that no. he wrote all these, like. Home Alone, I and mean, he wrote Home Alone 2, he wrote Home Alone 3, and I don't think Home Alone 3 is that bad. It's just not as good in comparison. Vacation, European Vacation is not very good, but Christmas Vacation. So he, apparently he didn't write European. Apparently, Europe, for some reason, they slapped his name on it. Oh, I, couldn't find I out. know that. I couldn't find out why they slapped his name on it, probably just to get the recognition, I guess, because he was famous yeah. by that point. But apparently he went on he went on vacation one one day, and he came back and he saw like a preview for the movie on TV and he didn't even realize they made the fucking movie oh. for, for for European vacation. And then, yeah. uh, and then something, I, I think because he hated 
not being involved or whatever. That's why he came back for Christmas vacation. He's like, I can't have my name on this movie. And like, that'd be the last one I need to come back and like, yeah, make a better one kind of thing. And like there again, talking about classics, like who doesn't watch Christmas vacation and home alone at Christmas? Like there are two. Staples. I'm not huge on home alone. I'm a more of a diehard guy as you know, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we do watch Christmas vacation every year. That's for sure. Yeah. And like, obviously, like I said, there's a, there's a common theme with a lot of these. We've touched on a bunch of them, but for me, it's, I think the movies that I think there's a pretty consistent again, generally not all. Generally, I think there's a pretty consistent style and quality with these scripts. I think the movies that stand out, the ones we've mentioned, Ferris Bueller's, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, uh, Home Alone, National Lampoons, all of these, Breakfast Club, have remarkable, memorable either actors and actresses in the roles or the performances, whatever, however you want to describe it. But all the ones we talked about, like you think of home alone, you think of Joe Pesci, Macaulay Culkin, you think of breakfast club, you think of all of them. You think of, uh, John Candy and Steve Martin. You think of, um, Chevy chase in, in, I mean, he is like Clark Griswold is in the pop culture. Like it's a memorable. And and those are all the movies. I'm seeing Instagram ads right now for fucking Clark Griswold, uh, hockey jerseys right now. Yeah. And even like something like Dennis, the menace, you said you watched like that movie's iconic. And Walter Matthew is amazing as Mr. Uh, Walter Matthew was definitely my favorite part of that film. Yeah. And like, they're great again. And it'd be interesting to get the actor's perspectives on the script. Like how much of this greatness is in the script and or how much of it is left open for the performer to shine. Like it'd be interesting to read like a Ferris Bueller's day off script. And like, did Matthew Broderick make it his own? And like, did he, did he have a lot of fun? And like, was John Hughes open and flexible and letting him improvise? And, and like, I know there's a lot of improvising in planes, trains and automobiles. Same with uncle buck. And mm-hmm. I, I, again, and like, it's, it's just fascinating where it's like, I don't think he, Breakfast Club is is definitely his best script, and it's it's really 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 good. I don't want to discount the script, but for the most part, I don't think any like I said any of these scripts are anything amazing. I think he knew the decade he was in. He knew how to reach an audience. He knew how to get asses in the seat and tell familiar relatable stories. And then he was also really good at casting and letting the actors and actresses shine because all of these people we've mentioned were so popular in the eighties and nineties. And they're still popular and relevant to today. Like, you yeah. don't see Matthew. Well, Matthew Broderick was just in that Netflix series that was supposed to be really good. I hadn't checked it out yet. Yeah, he's always the, been um, consistently around, but he'll never top. Like, Judd Nelson no, will never. No, he'll never top Ferris Bueller. He'll yeah. never top. I'm drawing a blank on his name. What's his name in, in Breakfast Club? Judd Nelson. Um, oh. Why uh, am I just I... keep thinking of uh, Butt Kiss when he says Butt Kiss. <laughs> what the uh, heck is his name? Oh my god, Bender! Because I'm- Bender. Yes, I knew it started with a B. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah Bender. And um, but yeah, that's what I mean. Like a lot of these actors were typecast: Molly Ringwald, Macaulay Culkin. A lot of definitely them Molly Ringwald. Like her character from like Pretty in Pink to Sixteen yeah. Candles. Like it all kind of. None of them could really do. break out of it and have and have like huge legendary careers, but they're all memorable for whether they're in the Brat Pack or or whatever. Like again, Chevy Chase. Has had a lot of great roles, but 9 out of 10 people will see Clark Griswold. When you see Macaulay Culkin, even now, grown up, Kevin McAllister. Even, yeah. even again, a lot of the Joe Pesci playing Harry was 
because of the reputation of Joe Pesci. But still, if it's if it's not Goodfellas, it's 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 Home Alone for definitely for Joe Pesci. So it's it's just fascinating. Where I think it's just I think you nailed it at the beginning, and that's a good way to wrap up. Lightning in a bottle. But I think lightning a bottle doesn't do it justice because it was over a long period. Like, can we somehow like, like lots of lightning in the bottle of the eighties? <laughs> I think I think he had a lightning in a bottle between when when did uh, Breakfast Club come in? Because that was kind of like the eighty five first... was kind of the was was kind of peak John Hughes. Yeah, yeah I'm like eighty five to like eighty eight is like peak John Hughes, yeah. and then everything kind of falls off a little bit after that like after home alone he has like the random one here and there like i he actually wrote flubber like bro come on i i wanted to get around to flubber i it's been forever that's one is one i've seen forever ago but a rotten tomatoes is not favorable for flubber but um uh but that breakfast club era up until like 88 basically or i guess whenever home alone came out when did home when did the first home or yeah one of the first 1990 so basically from like 80 yeah so he had like a five-year period where he was just like writing he it's not that every movie he wrote though was great in that five-year period right no, For no every no, no, planes no. trains and automobiles you also have what's the one with kevin bacon like she's having a baby she you know baby I mean? like, the great outdoors yeah like so you get these like Uncle Buck, stinkers kind Bacate. of thing that's um, that's a pretty good run like like look at this Planes, trains, and automobiles. She's having a baby. The Great Outdoors. Uncle Buck. Christmas Vacation. Home Alone. <laughs> yeah, and then I would say everything from Home Alone uh, onward, uh, outside of Home Alone Two, it was kind of yeah. Uh, well, Home Alone. He just took the home. Trend. He just took the Home Alone script and just changed it to New York and added a couple things. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of his scripts, like when you look at the movies post Home Alone, that's kind of he kind of fell into this this like story arc of like kid versus adult kind of yeah. thing because that's baby's day out that's dennis the menace Beethoven miracle on 34th street i've actually never seen that one <laughs> but i'm sure there's some element to that for sure yeah do home you, alone three obviously is the same thing do you um yeah i, I i've touched on everything i want to touch on is there anything else you wanted to say did you want to talk about home alone three <laughs> <laughs> no i didn't my, i i actually i don't hate the home alone movies i just find that the home alone movies take forever to get to the part that i like which is like fucking yeah. up the burglars kind of thing those yeah. are always the str- actually i think home alone 2 is strong throughout i like the kid exploring new york but home yeah, alone 3 and home alone funny. 1 the the peak moments in those films are when the burglars finally start coming into the house and he starts messing them up with all his traps and stuff <laughs> like that yeah home alone 3 uh, I, I have a lot i have a lot of fun with and he got a young scar joe in there too you do. You have a young ScarJo in there. There was one other. Uh, did I write it down in the note? There was one other uh, thing in there as well. Roger Ebert said. Oh, Ro- fun fact. Roger Ebert thought that that was his favorite Home Alone movie. The third one. The third one. <laughs> Isn't that so <laughs> random? And then, um, but um, what's it called? In terms of other points, I wanted to hit on. So Home Alone three didn't hate it. I like all the traps and stuff. I think it was a good change of pace uh from the storyline uh like reworking the storyline it's more of a rear window style story yeah. of like this kid spying on the neighbors kind of thing uh but didn't hate it but uh, like i said didn't love it either i was um, mainly kidding i wasn't expecting you to actually break down home alone 3 but that's amazing that you did <laughs> well i had uh, like i watched home alone 3 a lot for some reason as a kid i can't even remember why we had the vhs or something like that and then well, I haven't seen it in forever. And then watching the movie, like all these things started clicking in. I was like, oh my God, I remember all this. 
but this yeah. was just like sitting in the back of my brain for years. Uh, but random notes I kind of wrote down like overall, like a common uh, theme in his work was always shitty dads or like mean dads uh, and working moms. So that was always like a theme, like the mom's always too busy to watch the kid kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, common plot point in his movies is always weather delayed flights at O'Hare Airport. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of big families with chaotic households like 16. Oh, and candles. the houses like, are again, the, gorgeous in all his movies. The houses are massive. Like yeah. and, and she's having a baby when they're talking about, are you going to buy my wife a four bedroom with this and that? I'm like, fuck, this guy is this guy made of money or what? And like, fuck. But, and uh, I don't, I, I don't know if you came across this, but I know for at least a couple movies, Home Alone, and um, I forget which one. It might be Uncle Buck. He filmed a lot in schools, in gymnasiums, and pools and stuff. He would build sets. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I know specifically for Home Alone that a lot of it was filmed. I don't know if it was in a pool or a gymnasium. I think it was. I think it was Uncle Buck as well. A lot of the interiors are. Or they, they build their own sound stages. Because he, like, one of the things I listened to is that he, like, hated Hollywood and he loved, yeah. he loved Chicago. He just had this affinity for Chicago. He kind of grew up there at a young age. And he wanted to be out of the limelight. He just wanted to kind of make his movies in quiet to a degree. So yeah. what happens when you're shooting movies in a spot that doesn't have movies? You have to rent the biggest room you can get, which is like a gymnasium. Yeah. So that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it was something like that. I don't remember. And I, from what I've read on him, like he was he was a family man. He was private, which all this lines up. Uh-huh. And um, again, like it was nice to watch some of these that I haven't seen in a, uh, in a while and a, a, some that I have never seen. And there's a few that are have a special place in my heart for sure. And that are timeless. And, uh, yeah, I think you nailed it too, with all the influence that he's <clears throat> had on a lot of filmmakers that you and I maybe like more and uh, more movies that we're familiar with that. Again, it just proves that everyone is influenced by something and it's all just kind of a revolving door in the arts. Yeah. hundred percent. And, uh, just to add on a couple more tack on a couple last things here with scripts is that, Apparently, he wrote the original script for Dumb and Dumber, but due to, like, details behind the scenes that he made with people, his name was stripped from that project. Oh. But what's funny is that in Vacation, they sing Mockingbird early on, and so that makes me think that they – like, it makes me think, like, oh, he must have wrote it because, like, they sing Mockingbird again hilariously in Dumb and Dumber. Or that's definitely a homage or something, but apparently that's a fact. And then he had two movies. He had multiple movies that were almost made that never got did, but these were the two standouts for me. Is One movie he had an idea for was called Tickets, and it was about a group of teenagers pulling an all-nighter waiting for tickets to a legendary rock concert. I just yeah. love that premise. I love that idea. I think 70s Show kind of did an episode about that. Uh, but I just love that idea. I thought that was a great idea that unfortunately never got produced by him. And then, um, and then here's one for you. I don't know if you I ever know heard exactly of this. which one you're going to say. I know. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. In 1991, he was going to make a movie called Bartholomew versus Neff. And it was a comedy that was going to star John Candy and Sylvester Stallone as feuding <laughs> neighbors. And we were robbed of that. We were robbed of that movie. That could have been great. That would have been great. Yeah, Stallone's great at doing comedies in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Especially get Dolly Parton in there and kill yeah. it. Oh, it would have been great. Yeah, and yeah. just to touch on, obviously, John Candy, we lost way too soon. May he rest in peace. And John Hughes, 
who I believe it was 2009 when he passed away. Um, Yeah, I just, obviously may they rest in peace. And this is kind of a Thanksgiving episode as well. So happy Thanksgiving to all our American listeners and all our Canadian listeners. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving last month. (laughs) <laughs> I had a great Thanksgiving last month. Yeah. Like, I, I hope everyone, <laughs> I hope all of our American friends love their turkey and, and ham and stuffing and all the good stuff. Well, thanks for joining Chris. And as always, thanks for watching these movies. I'm glad you didn't watch every single thing like you normally do. Um, I, if I had an extra, we honestly, I almost forgot we were doing this. And then I think you messaged me around the beginning of the month being like, all right, what day you want to record? I'm like, Oh fuck. I didn't watch any of these movies yet. <laughs> So I just, just like I did earlier this year with Stallone and Arnold, like all I've been watching for the last two weeks are these movies. Now, did Jenna appreciate this more than Stallone? Definitely appreciate it more than Stallone, but she also like, she was, I meant to bring it up. I was actually going to ask if Jamie watched these with you and how, like, were these movies uh, nostalgic to her in any way? Like, does she have an affinity for these movies? No. She, she, I've seen a bunch with her and she said no to all the (laughs) rewatches. So, that's hilarious yeah. jenna said that she used to love 16 candles pretty in pink and a couple other ones we watched pretty in pink and 16 candles those were the two most recent yeah ones we watched and she didn't really care for them yeah. she's like oh i don't know why i was obsessed with these movies because they a lot of the men in particular come off kind of creepy yeah. and weird in the movie and like like we talked about earlier things don't necessarily hold up jamie likes like we're gonna watch home alone for christmas and stuff like that but i i don't I don't. <clears throat> I I know she didn't love planes, trains, and automobiles. A Breakfast Club, I think she likes. Her brother likes it a lot, and um, yeah, I, she she respectfully declined watching some of these with me. So it's all good. Nice, right? It's on. all good. Um, we're all gonna watch Christmas Vacation in about a month anyway. Yes, yes, and that's always a good time. So thanks yeah. again, Chris. Thanks everyone for listening, and uh, sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. <laughs> did I, did I say well and no one can see but i raised my fist up in the air wait you're still here go home it's over go home and to anyone who's listening who has no idea what we're doing they're not going to understand that at all <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't watch ferris bueller at this point and you listened to the whole episode then what are you doing with your life <laughs> thanks chris take care see you bud bye